Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Our love to you. Lord, may we focus on all that you've done and we look forward to what you're going to do. Join with us this morning in a great and mighty way we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Father, we do want to lift up our friends and our family here in our church. And we thank you, Lord, for just the technology and the medicine and, and the skills that are available now to deal with these issues that might have been much more dangerous in times past. Then, Father, I just come before you this morning knowing that it is the time in which we celebrate our country. I know many are at a loss, maybe even conflicted with all that's going on, whether there should be pride or whether there should be any thankfulness or gratitude. But, Lord, I want to come and thank you for our country. 239 years have we been in this democracy experiment. And, Lord, we thank you for the freedoms that have come with it. And with that freedom and liberty have come great responsibility and privileges. And Lord, this country for years has stood up and have been one of the leading missionary countries in the world. And we thank you for that. And Father, we don't know if that is going to be curtailed or not. But in any case, we pray, Lord, that we could still be a country, Lord, that is sending out uh, gospel-centered preachers and missionaries, those who want to spread the gospel. But in the meantime, Lord, we have become really the destination place for many people of many tongues and tribes. For those we could not reach, they're now coming to our shores. And so, Lord, let us open up our arms and embrace them as we also share with them the gospel. Father, we understand that our pledge of allegiance, it says one nation under God, but yet we realize it truly is not under one God, as there are many gods, as there are people in the states. And hence why many times we fret when we see that things do not go the way that we desire it to go. Help us as believers to recognize our standings as both citizens of heaven and citizens of earth. No other time, at least in our American history, have we been so divided. And Lord, as Christianity has been unfavored, and the fact that we see many attacks now coming, give us wisdom. Let us be men to know how to live in times. Give us men who understand the times. But Lord, let us pray for our leaders. Let us submit to our leaders as your word has commanded us to do so. But also give us discernment. For as much as we obey man, we must obey God even more. We thank you for our freedoms and liberties, and let us not take it for granted. For there are many brothers and sisters in Christ who do not enjoy that liberty and freedom this morning. For they are in countries, Lord, that do not value those types of freedoms and liberties. But yet, your word and your truth, your kingdom will grow. And Father, I pray for a single-minded focus on that. Let us seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things, Lord, we know will be added to us. Lord, again, we thank you for all that you've given us. Let us never take it for granted. But Lord, let us draw us more to you. We pray this in the name of Christ. And all of God's people said, Amen. Good morning. Happy Independence Day. Well, yesterday, I guess. So me and Rob are talking, and as we were thinking, well, you know, how can we incorporate July 4th 
into the sermon this morning, and we had decided that you know, it'd be really cool if we preached a sermon that was 1700 style. So it's only going to be about three hours long. So don't worry, just sit tight. Just kidding. But yeah, so yesterday was July 4th, Independence Day. Hope everyone had a safe and, and fun day. And like Rob said earlier, it was the 239th anniversary of the day that the founders of this nation signed the Declaration of Independence, officially instigating war with England and really forever changing world history. The long war that followed was hard fought, hard won. In fact, it's such an amazing tale that one can clearly see the hand of providence at work in the details. There were many times when the war was nearly lost. There were times when the American soldiers had nothing to clothe themselves with and nothing to eat. Times they were so hungry they even ate their own shoes. Literally, they ate their own shoes. They boiled them and ate them. Many froze to death. Many died of disease. Many were killed in battle. And many deserted the army at its greatest hour of need. One of the biggest problems they had in the army was actually keeping people in. But many persevered. And yet, in the end, against all odds, this new nation amazingly prevailed. Um, as one writer of the time put it, there must have been an angel in the whirlwind. In other words, God must have been at work in the midst of this chaos. And so we celebrate the birth of our nation with fireworks and heavily processed meat. I'm still not sure where that connect is. Um, I haven't figured it out yet, but I'm still young, so I'm still working on it. Uh, we celebrate the inalienable rights, as they call them, of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's the American ideals, the American dream. So let me ask you, what do you picture when you picture the American dream? What comes to your mind? I can think of two different things. One American dream is this idea of opportunity. Uh, everyone supposedly has the opportunity here to excel and kind of climb the ladder out of poverty into relative wealth. You know, people like Arnold Schwarzenegger who come over with nothing, homeless, and are able to achieve their dreams. Many, many immigrants have come to America's shores with that hope, hoping to work uh, towards this dream, the dream of not starving to death, the dream of equal chance. It's a good dream. And we're blessed to live in a country where that spirit is still alive. The second type of American dream I think of is the pursuit of wealth and comfort, right? I think of having enough money to not have to worry about it, enough money to buy things when you want. I think of owning a home, you know, maybe with a white picket fence, Think of a nice retirement pension or at least enough money invested so you can kind of live off of it without worry. Maybe buy an RV. Think of nice cars, family, vacation homes, comfort, good air conditioning. It's the American dream. Is that not what so many Americans are pursuing, so many of us? You know, you've seen the bumper sticker. He who dies with the most toys wins. I mean, you laugh because it's ridiculous. But that's how we think so many times. Even subconsciously, we get caught up in that thinking. I need to have this. I want this. If I only had that, I would be happy. It's infected our thinking. And if we've already achieved it, we can sit back and enjoy. If not, we yearn for the day that we'll get there. Maybe we're just jealous of those who have it. This may be the American dream, but it's not the Christian dream. I also think of freedom, though. Right? Freedom to pursue these things. Isn't that what America is all about? Freedom. Freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom from tyranny, freedom from someone telling you what to think or what to do, freedom to be what you want, do what you want, live where you want, wear what you want. And on a societal level, that's a great blessing. But this is not what Jesus meant when he talked about freedom. And when Jesus talked about living the abundant life in John 10, he wasn't talking about the American dream. He wasn't talking about having an RV. 
This might seem obvious to us, but here in America, and really anywhere, it can be easy to confuse America with Christianity, as if they were interchangeable terms. It's a serious danger. We confuse American ideals, such as prosperity, with Christian ideals. And when this happens, Jesus gets distorted. Christianity gets distorted. It's it's really easy to spot, but so many times we fall into it not being able to see our own blind spots. And it happens on both sides of the political spectrum, really. This distorted, politicized American Jesus is not the Jesus of the Bible. For some, Jesus is a white gun rights advocate who doesn't like immigrants, thinks global warming is a hoax, and sings the praises of capitalism. For others, Jesus is a feminized hippie-like character, Obama supporter who shares a tear when anyone litters, who only ever talks about love and acceptance and sings the praises of socialism. But please understand this, neither of these are the true Jesus. You cannot take Jesus and paste him onto your own political party or your political views. You can't do that. Jesus is not a Republican. He's not a Democrat. He's not even registered to vote. He's not even American. He didn't even speak English. He doesn't have citizenship. He didn't even speak King James English. So we need to be careful that we get our views from Jesus and not that we import Jesus onto our views when it comes to politics, when it comes to anything, really. Jesus is the king. He's the Messiah. He's the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Holy One of God, the Savior of the world. And to think of him in any capacity less than that is to take away from his glory. We are called to worship God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit with all that we are and all that we have. And we are called to love our neighbor. And this means loving homosexuals, homophobes, adulterers, those of different races, Muslims, mean Christians, racists, cold-hearted conservatives, ignorant liberals, corporate thieves, abortionists, etc. You get the point. These are all our neighbors. All people everywhere need the gospel, need the love of God. They need Jesus. They need to experience this love of God. They need freedom, and the freedom that America gives out is not enough. Not because it isn't good, but because it's not good enough. It's freedom from men. We need freedom that comes from Jesus. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What did Jesus have to say about this great American ideal of freedom? What is the freedom that Jesus gives? And why is it so much better than anything we could ever hope for or imagine? So with that, let's turn to John 8, verse 31. We're going to be looking at verses 31 through 38. It says this, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And so, here's what's going on kind of surrounding this text. You know, we talk about all the time that it doesn't do any good to read a text if you don't take it in its context. Chapter 8 in John Jesus has really started to get into it with the Pharisees. Jesus has kind of been gathering a large crowd of disciples. Some of them have been coming and going. Some of them have been leaving when they didn't like his teaching. 
and people just were kind of coming. When it was convenient, they came to follow Jesus. When they, he said something they didn't like, then nah, I'm not so much, I'm leaving. So they followed Jesus for a little while, left when it gets inconvenient. They couldn't handle it. But the Pharisees have tried to arrest Jesus already in the Gospel of John, but it didn't work because the soldiers who went to arrest him were captivated by his teaching and just said, no one ever spoke like this man. We, could, we couldn't do anything. His teaching was, we just never experienced anything like it. So they couldn't arrest him. So now Jesus is in Jerusalem at a festival, the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, a time of great celebration for the Jews. Jerusalem would have been packed full with people. It's a celebration of the faithfulness of God and the Exodus and a reminder of the time they spent in the desert. Jesus has just declared earlier in John 8, famous statement, I am the light of the world. And the Pharisees told him to his face that he's a liar. In response, he told them that if they do not believe that he is who he says he is, the Messiah, the Savior of the world, that they will die in their sins. So essentially you can see that tension is building. He's squaring off with the Pharisees on their home turf. Now they don't realize it's really his home turf, but the tension is building. And the Jews themselves are dividing between siding with Jesus and siding with the Pharisees. I mean, oftentimes we think that the Pharisees are the bad guys, but in, to, according to the Jews, the Pharisees were the good guys. Everybody loved the Pharisees. They were the people's kind of teachers. They weren't highfalutin kind of away from the people. They were the holy people. They were the pastors and teachers. And so the people are kind of confused. Do we side with Jesus or do we side with the Pharisees? What do we do here? And so they're dividing. And we see this in verse 31. Some of the Jews had started believing in him. And so the first thing that we see, verse 31 says, So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, and if you kind of back up to verse 30, it says, As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So he's teaching and people are starting to believe. And the first thing that we see in verse 31 is that there are true and false disciples. There are real and fake disciples. Genuine and, and people who are just faking it. Even in this day, so as it is today. But before we dive into this, let me say something. It's kind of something about how Satan works. And if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I think you'll affirm the truth of this. If you're a true disciple of Jesus, a true follower of Jesus, Satan wants you to doubt that and wants you to think that you're a false disciple. If you're a false disciple, Satan wants you to think you're a true disciple so they don't worry about it. And so he deceives. That's what he does. If you're saved, Satan wants to convince you that you're not good enough and you're not really saved. If you're not saved, Satan wants to convince you, ah, don't worry about it, you're fine. Everything's good. Right? And so he, he plays with our minds like that. So let us neither be discouraged this morning nor deceived. So with that, see, some of the Jews had believed in him. So what does Jesus do? He attempts to separate the true followers from the fake followers. Look at what he says next. It says, so Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. So basically, Jesus is saying this. My true disciples are those who remain in my teachings. That's what distinguishes a true disciple from a fake one. It's pretty simple, actually. Jesus isn't stupid. He understands that some people then, some people now, in our day, will follow him for many different reasons. We saw this when we talked about the parable of the soils, right? Some will fall away when things get tough. Some will get choked out by the cares of the world. So let me ask you, why do you follow Jesus? Some follow him because all their friends are doing it. Maybe because they grew up in church and it just seems like the right thing to do. 
Maybe because their family would look down on them if they didn't follow Jesus. Maybe because their parents are followers of Jesus. Maybe because they just like the idea of going to church on Sundays because it seems like the American way. Going to church every Sunday doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus. Being a pastor doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus. Being the Pope doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus. Being a Republican doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus. Neither does being a Democrat. Loving America and freedom doesn't make you a true disciple of Jesus. You can't fake it. The truth is that agreeing with Jesus doesn't make you a true disciple. It's believing in Jesus that makes you a true disciple. And there's a big difference between those two. Agreeing with Jesus doesn't make you a true disciple. It's believing in him that does. But Jesus speaks to all these people and to all of us in this passage when he says, if you abide in my teaching, if you will hold fast to me, you are truly my disciple. You're a genuine disciple. You're a real disciple. This makes sense. I mean, we get this. I mean, if you're not going to hold on to Jesus' teaching, then how could you be his disciple? I mean, that's kind of the definition of a disciple is one who follows after someone and their teaching. It's pretty plain. And yet, this isn't the only place in Scripture where we find this idea. There's a few others. Second John 9 says, Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. Whoever abides in the teaching has both the Father and the Son. Again, very straightforward. Those who abandon the teaching, the message of Jesus, are not true disciples. Hebrews 3.14 says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. Mark 13.13, Jesus says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And so we see, by the overwhelming testimony of Scripture, that the true disciples of Jesus are those who hold fast to him and his teaching until the end, until death. Not those who have a perfect record of church attendance, but those who hold on to Jesus. And as we continue on in this passage, I want to pause quickly to say a few ways not to apply this passage, a few ways not to apply this idea, a few things that this doesn't mean. Number one, this doesn't mean that everyone who disagrees with you is a false disciple. Or everyone who disagrees on an interpretation of a scripture or a political issue or doesn't see things exactly the way you or we do has abandoned Jesus and is a false disciple. Because you're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. And I guarantee that your beliefs, my beliefs, are not inerrant or perfect. We're all tainted by sin, and so we need to be graceful and careful with these things. We're not saved by having a perfect theology, but entrusting in the finished work of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. If anyone disagrees with you, it doesn't mean they're a false disciple. Number two, this doesn't mean that someone who walks away from Christ might not eventually repent and turn back. We never give up hope on people, ever, never. We continue to pray and continue to share the gospel with those who have left Jesus' teaching. Number three is this does not mean that you're a false disciple if you ever sin or doubt. Trust Jesus. Trust in his finished work on the cross, not in your own ability to stop sinning. Your ability to stop sinning is not what saves you. Jesus saves you. Your faith in Jesus saves you. Not your faith plus your goodness. Just faith. Endurance, holding to Jesus' teaching, is not a condition of salvation. It's not what makes you saved, but a manifestation of that. In other words, holding to Jesus' teaching doesn't make you right with God. It shows that you know God and know Jesus if you hold to his teaching. It reveals your heart. This is really important to understand the difference between those two. 
It's often said that the Christian life is one of repentance. Well, you can't repent if there's no sin. It kind of assumes that there's going to be a struggle with sin in the Christian life. So recognize sin. Fight against it with all your brothers and sisters. Fight it with everything you have. But don't for a second let Satan convince you that because you're fighting with sin, you aren't a Christian. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Pastor and author Tim Keller puts it brilliantly, I think, when he says this. This is what he says. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's beautiful. We're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That's so true. So we've seen then that there's true and false disciples. Jesus declares this. There are those who abide, remain in Jesus' teaching, and those who don't. Those who hold on to Jesus and those who don't. Those who trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross, the power of the resurrection, and those who reject it. And as we continue, you'll see that these Jews he's talking to right now are going to reject that. But for true disciples, Jesus has another word. When he says, if you're a true disciple, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Brings us to our second point. True or genuine disciples will know the truth. It's what verse 32 says, and the first half says, and you will know the truth. So immediately after defining a line between true and false disciples, Jesus quickly lets us in on the benefits of being a true disciple. Truth and freedom. Disciples of Jesus will know the truth. The truth about what, you might ask? The truth about everything. Seriously, everything. Think about it. God created the world through Jesus Christ, Paul tells us in Colossians 1. In fact, Jesus upholds everything by the power of his word. He created everything. Every dust mite, every molecule. He knows the why of every question. He knows the purpose behind everything. He knows the answer to every puzzling question that physicists wonder about. He knows all there is to know about black holes, planets, and stars, and quantum physics. He's made it all. He is the fountain of all knowledge. He is the source of all physical and scientific truth. But he is also the source of all spiritual truth. And he has revealed it all to us. Firstly in himself, and secondly through his word. So when we begin to follow Jesus and are adopted into his family, we begin to see things for what they are. We begin to see things how they truly are. That's the definition of truth, right? Corresponding to reality. We begin to see the world for what it is. We begin to see ourselves for the simple people that we are, and we begin to see Jesus for the great and compassionate Savior and King that he is. We begin to know the truth because Jesus is the truth incarnate. In John 14, 6, he declares this quite frankly, saying, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is truth and is also the revealer of all truth. In John 16, 13, Jesus tells that the Holy Spirit is the spirit of truth and will lead us into all truth. Therefore, those who are not true disciples will not know the truth of all things. Those who are disciples will know the truth of all things. It doesn't mean that at times you won't be wrong or deceived, but ultimately, you know the truth because you know Jesus and because you have the very words of God. But there's also a negative side to this idea of truth. It's the opposite implication. 
if true disciples know the truth, then false disciples and people who don't know Jesus don't know the truth. Paul tells us that in 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. Listen to what Paul says. He says, In their case, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So with Paul then, we praise God for shining his light into our hearts, opening our eyes to the gospel, opening our eyes to Jesus. And with Paul, we continue to pray that God would continue to shine more light on more hearts, and because we know he is faithful to hear that prayer, we step out in faith and share the gospel with everyone, awaiting that day when people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation will bow at the throne of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Jesus speaks to us. True disciples of Jesus will know the truth. The third point is this, that Jesus is the source of true freedom. True freedom. Verse 32, he continues and says, And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. What an amazing passage. As you can see, the tension is growing even within these few verses. And this is a conversation with people whom John has told us believed in Jesus. These Jews were offended that Jesus would even offer them freedom. They were tracking with Jesus up until this point. They kind of react, whoa, 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 who are you to offer us freedom? We're not slaves. We've never been enslaved to anyone. We are sons of Abraham. You're crazy. Just a side note, I'm always amazed at Jesus' ability to push buttons. Jesus knows exactly what to say to set people off and exactly where to push to find out where their hearts are at. It's crazy. I just love it. And so he says exactly what he wants to say to show exactly where their hearts are at. So they react. We've never been enslaved to anyone. What kind of freedom could you offer us? And we look at this text and almost laugh because we think, oh, those Jews are so naive. I mean, come on, Jesus is standing there offering freedom. You've got to take that freedom. But can't you imagine almost like an American saying the same thing? We're Americans. We've never been a slave to anyone. We practically invented freedom and democracy, or so we think. How can you tell us we will become free? Right? It's the same kind of thing. But can you see it? The irony is that the Jews thought they were free, which is why they rejected Jesus' message of freedom. They held on to their false freedom and rejected his true freedom. You can't set a slave free if they don't know they're a slave. But the truth is much sadder. Anyone who doesn't know the truth and who doesn't know Jesus is a slave in a very real sense. In fact, in a more real sense than anything we can see or imagine. In fact, in the most real sense that there is. Listen to Jesus' next words. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. More literally, everyone who does sin is a slave to sin. Everyone who is not in Christ is a slave. It's the only implication we can draw from this passage. They are enslaved to sin, dominated by sin. All they can do is sin. Why? Because nothing they do is done through faith in Christ. Nothing they do is for the glory of God. And therefore, everything they do is tainted with sin in the eyes of God. No matter how good the deed, no matter how many people it helps, 
It's not done for the glory of God. It's tainted with sin in the eyes of God. Hear this today, brothers and sisters. If you have not placed your trust in Jesus Christ, if you have not repented and believed the good news about him, if you have not bowed your knee to Jesus in submission, acknowledging your sin and trusting in him, asking for forgiveness, then you're a slave. You're a slave to sin. Sin is your master. And everyone here can testify that sin is the hardest driving, most brutal, unrelenting master that you can have. Sin is a master that wants you dead. Paul affirms this when he writes, like we we heard earlier in Romans 6.23, that the wages of sin is death. In other words, the paycheck you get when you work for sin is death. That's the payment you get for working for sin. Sin will promise you every pleasure and desire that you can lust after and deliver only death. Sins like this. So imagine a poor man in the 1700s, let's say in America. This man has lost all his money. He's down and out. He stinks. His clothes are tattered and ripped. He has nowhere to go, no family. But he's made it to the new world. He's at the end of his rope, and along comes a wealthy slave landowner dressed in nice clothes. He meets the young man, hears his story, and says, I think I can help you. He offers him a deal. He tells the young man, young man, I can help you. Let's make a deal. You come work for me for free as a slave on my cotton plantation for seven years. But it won't be that bad. I'll take care of you. I'll feed you, clothe you. After those seven years are up, I'll give you a nice piece of land, and you can build a house, have a family, start a farm. All that you want will be yours after just seven years of work. The young man says, wow, that sounds like a great idea. He joyfully agrees, never knowing that the entire time the slave master plans to work him to death within the first six months. That's what sin is like. That's the master that sin is like. You can have all these things if you'll work for me, but he just plans to work you till you're dead, never fulfilling any promise, promising everything you want, only delivering death. It looks so good at the time, but death and destruction are always the result of sin. And sadly, this is the state of everybody who rejects Christ. That's what Christ is telling us in this passage. All those who will not call in the name of Jesus for salvation are slaves. Again, listen to Tim Keller. Listen to these words on sin. This is such a vivid description. Sin is the suicidal action of the human soul against itself. Sin isn't simply a passing action. Sinful actions create a dark reality in your life that stays with you. Sin creates bad habits. It creates distorted affections. These things control you and you start to lose control of yourself. Len, listen to this last line. You're surrendering yourself to something that wants to kill you. Let that sink in. When you submit to sin, you are submitting to something that wants you dead. Jesus offers abundant, eternal life full of joy. And sin and Satan offer death. And yet so many people can't see the difference. I pray that you would see the difference. They think they are free, but they're not. Just like that song we sung, All I Have is Christ. Thought I was on the right path, but I was going down the road to destruction. Sadly, the day of judgment will be a rude awakening for many. We talk of freedom much here in America, but how many in the country are slaves of sin? wearing shackles, following blindly their taskmaster. 
But the good news is this. Jesus came to set captives free. Jesus came to smash the shackles of slavery and slay sin once and for all. A slave can never set another slave free. But Jesus says the son of the household can set slaves free. Jesus declares here that if he sets you free, you are truly free. You are free indeed. You are really free. True freedom given by Jesus and Jesus alone. You can't earn it. You can't take it. You can only receive it. It's received, not achieved. Jesus gives it. Jesus sets people free. Friends, do you want freedom from sin today? Freedom from slavery? Freedom from death? I pray that you would cry out to Jesus, the great liberator. He will set you free. Now this freedom that Jesus gives will set you free from many things. See, Jesus sets you free from darkness. In John 8, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Jesus sets you free from darkness. Jesus sets you free from condemnation. He said in John 5.24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my words and believes in him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Believing is all it takes. Jesus sets you free from condemnation. Jesus sets you free from the power of Satan. In 1 John 5.18, John writes, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God, Jesus, protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. So Jesus sets you free from the power of Satan. Jesus sets you free from death itself. He says in John 8.51, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And so Jesus sets us free from death. That is true freedom. A freedom that no man-made system of government can offer and no government can take away. A freedom that as believers we have been called into. A freedom that displays the glory of Christ. A freedom that was not made in the USA but was purchased by the death of the Son of God on a Roman cross on top of a hill outside of Jerusalem 2,000 years ago. This freedom that we celebrate was not free. Jesus purchased it with his own life. He gave himself up, taking our sins upon himself, suffering death, humiliating himself, God in human flesh, letting sinners nail him to a cross, a death that only a slave would endure, and hang him in front of everyone so that you and I could be free. He purchased our freedom through becoming a slave. I, for one, will never fully understand that. I will never understand why the very Son of God was willing to do that for us. For people, you and me, in rebellion against him. He took us as enemies and made us into his bride. That's love. That is how God loves that's how God showed his love for his very own people. He gave his own son in our place. And they pierced his side, found he was dead, took him down and put his dead body in the tomb. But three days later, Jesus Christ proved once and for all that he truly was son of God when he rose from the tomb, casting off death itself and forever showing that he has defeated death, sin, and Satan. You see, when he was on that cross, nailed, bloody, hanging there, he took our sin. He enslaved himself to sin. The shackles of sin 
were fastened around his wrist, and all our sin was piled onto his shoulders. But those shackles could not hold our king. He burst them apart when he rose. And this is why he has the authority to free slaves today. This is why Jesus is the liberator of the captives, of the slaves. This is why you can and you must put your trust in him and continue to gaze at his beauty and the wonder that is the cross and the resurrection. This is why the entire Christian life from beginning to end is lived by clinging to Jesus, by faith, by trust, not by trying really, really hard, not by being a good little boy or a good little girl. Jesus isn't Santa Claus. Jesus is our Savior, our Lord, our King. You have nothing left to earn. He earned it all for you. And as our Lord and as our Savior, as our King, He has truly set us free. Free from darkness, free from condemnation, free from the power of Satan, free from death, free from hoping in a man-made government, free from hoping in this world. He has set us free to love, to love him, to love each other, free to follow him, and free to have our joy fulfilled by living for his glory. And so if you know Jesus today, if you know this freedom, would you rest in it? Would you rest in that freedom? It's beautiful and ultimate freedom, freedom from death, freedom from condemnation. Would you praise God for all that he has done for you? in your place, giving his own son. Rest in that freedom. If you know Jesus, you love Jesus this morning, but you don't feel this freedom. You're struggling to rest in it. You want to experience this freedom. You say, I don't know if I've experienced it. I I, I get it intellectually, but I, I just don't know how to experience that. Would you pray to God and ask for it? Would you ask God to grant that you would feel that freedom, that you would understand that freedom deep in your soul, that you would know it so deeply? He is faithful. He will surely do it. And if you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, maybe this is all new to you, maybe it isn't, would you trust in Jesus today? Why wait? Why remain a slave when you could be a son of the king, daughter of the king? Place your faith in him today. Call on his name. Cry out to him to save you. Would you bow your head with me? Wherever you're at this morning, I just pray that you would take a moment to pause and reflect. Pray to God. Ask him, Lord, what do you have for me in this? What do do you want to teach me through this, Lord? Where am I at? Maybe you need to praise him. Maybe you want to thank him. Maybe you want to cry out to him for help. That's one of my favorite prayers. Lord, help me. Lord, have mercy on me, sinner. So I just give this time to you to reflect. What is God calling you today? Father, we thank you for who you are, Lord. We thank you that you are a liberator. Lord, we thank you that you looked upon our helpless state and led us to the cross, Father. That even when we were enemies rebelling against you, you saw fit to give your own son for us in our place, Father. Lord, we can never praise you enough for that. We fail at words to express our gratitude, Lord. Lord, I pray that you would move this morning And I thank you that you already have been moving this morning, Lord. Lord, would you push us towards you? Would you open our eyes, maybe for the first time, or maybe just open them even wider to see your glory, to see the love of your Son, to see the power of the resurrection? Father, would you move this morning? Break chains this morning, God. 
smash the bonds of sin, Satan, and death this morning, God. We love you so much, Father. In Jesus' name. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.